Jersey Guy Sports, your sports talk home for the Yankees, the Giants, the Rangers, and the Rutgers Scarlet Knights, and I'm your host, Don. Thanks for tuning in. Today, I'm going to be talking about the Rangers blowing a late lead and losing to the Carolina Hurricanes 2-1 in overtime. This is Wednesday night on the road in Game 1 of the second round of the NHL playoffs. It was a crusher. Also going to be talking about Yankees odds and ends. So let's go ahead and get started. The New York Rangers lost in brutal fashion 2-1 in overtime to the Carolina Hurricanes Wednesday night on the road in Game 1 of the second round of the NHL playoffs. Unfortunately, the Rangers did have the lead for 58 of the 60 minutes of regulation, then gave up a late goal, and then gave up an early goal in overtime, and the Rangers lost in just crushing fashion. This was the kind of game... That will almost certainly, at least in my mind, ensure that Carolina wins this series. I know as silly as it sounds, it's only game one. To say something like that this early is a little bit silly. But I'll bet anyone, any amount of money right now, that this series is over at this point. The Rangers had this game won, and then they didn't. Now, expectations were low heading into the series for the Rangers, right? Uh, the Rangers were dismantled by Carolina during the regular season. And coming into the series, they were not expected to beat Carolina. There were some, you know, homeboys, other people, you know, making predictions that the Rangers were going to win. But anyone who rationally looked at this was thinking it probably is not going to happen and that Carolina is just a better team. If they had managed this upset in Game 1 on the road, this would have ensured that it would have been a, a long series and anything would have been possible. And I think that's all erased, uh, not only with the loss, but with the manner of loss. Losing a game that they actually played better than Carolina in is a crushing blow for a lot of reasons. The Rangers, one could argue, in the seven games against Pittsburgh, almost never played better overall than Pittsburgh. They didn't outshoot them in any game. Uh, they had maybe certain periods in those games where you could say they played better than Pittsburgh. But in almost all seven games, it seemed like Pittsburgh played better. And the games that the Rangers won, you know, they barely won. And, you know, got outshot and, and a lot of times outplayed. This game, until the third period, the Rangers were outplaying the Carolina Hurricanes, who are a much better team than the Pittsburgh Penguins. And to play that well and still lose, I think, has a deep psychological impact on the Rangers. And once the Carolina Hurricanes actually start playing well, you know, it'll be a different story here. So, unfortunately, they blew the lead late and they lost the game. And we're going to have to see if there's some way they can overcome this. In my mind... Absolutely not. This is it. This was a crusher. Carolina, in the very beginning of the game, kind of controlled the play early. Uh, each team had brief early power plays, as we talk about the game here briefly, that didn't really do much. You know, the kid line played really well, started out very strong, and they scored a goal early in the game. Seven minutes in, uh, the, the kid line scored a game that put the Rangers up one nothing, and that held up until there were two minutes left in the game. <laughs> Heedle ended up burying a pass. A one-timer from Alexi Lafreniere was an excellent start, uh, especially considering the Rangers hadn't had the puck very often before that goal at the seven-minute mark of the first period. Um, Tyler Mott 
was cross-checked in the back. Unfortunately, midway through the first period, I was really worried about that. It was kind of a dirty play that the announcers called out and then didn't really say it should be a penalty. Oh, he's hurt because of this cross-check and nothing that the refs missed a penalty, whatever. Anyway, it's kind of funny. Um, this wasn't a game that the refs had any kind of real uh, role in, unlike the Pittsburgh series, which it seemed like every single game, every single game, the, the refs played some kind of role in those games. This was a game that the refs did not really play a role in. Um, at some point also in the first period, Ryan Lingren went to the locker room, which was a gigantic concern, right? We cannot lose Ryan Lingren. Rangers have been significantly worse in every single game in the playoffs that Lingren did not play. Um, with about five minutes left in the first period, the kid line was kind of back at it. Heedle missed uh, kind of a, a shot at another goal where Auntie Ranta, former Ranger, made a beautiful stretch toe save that would have put the Rangers up 2-0. It was a nice save. If, if Cheadle could have just lifted the puck a little, he probably would have been able to have a goal. But it was a great save by Ranta. Um, as the first period went on, the Rangers started to play better and generated some pretty damn good scoring chances. And the Rangers finished the period really strong, right? And they led one nothing after one. Um, when the second period started then, luckily Lingren, by the way, was back on the ice. And thank God it was huge that, that he was around for, for this game. Um, the Rangers had the better of the play for most of the second period. The kids line generated a lot of scoring chances. Matter of fact, midway through the game, with about 10 minutes left in the second period, the Rangers had played much better defensively overall than they had at any point in the series against the Penguins. Yet half the game gone, and it was way better defensively. It was shocking. You know, with, I don't know, maybe seven minutes left in the second period or less, the Rangers seemed to have, I was thinking to myself, Wow, we have a significant advantage in play over this team, which was shocking because in my mind coming into this, I thought we would not look anything like this against this team. However, as well as we were playing, we only had a one nothing lead. And you know that feeling, Ranger fans, right? Where you're absolutely, you know, I don't want to say they were dominating Carolina because they weren't, but they had a clear, absolute advantage in play. They were getting lots of shots. And they were playing well and skating well and defending well. And it was all of one nothing. When you're playing that well and you only have a one goal lead, that always spells trouble in the NHL because you're basically one goal away from everything turning around, right? It was weird to have the lead and feel extremely uneasy, but that's kind of how I felt. It felt like they should have had a much bigger lead at that point if you were to compare the scoring chances at that point in the game. The Rangers did finish the second period pretty strong defensively, and they started the third period up one to nothing. The third period was a whole nother story. It was a disaster for the Rangers. Utterly, completely dominated by Carolina. Any semblance of having the upper hand that they had in the rest of the game was gone. It was dropped in, to start the third period. From, from the moment the puck was dropped in the third period, everything changed. Carolina kept the Rangers pinned in their own zone all period long. They dominated the shots on goal by a wide margin. Matter of fact, 10 minutes into the third or so, I don't remember exactly when, the Rangers had zero shots on goal and one attempted shot. So let that sink in. One attempted shot. 
you're you're starting the period. You run out. You're changing lines. You're taking face-offs here, there. And by the way, face-offs were another atrocious disaster for the Rangers. I know when I talk here, guys, it sounds like hyperbole. Oh, disaster, horrible, terrible, using all the, these words. But for true Ranger fans, and that's what this podcast is for, true fans of the sports that I like, if you watch the Rangers night in and night out, you know what I'm saying, right? Their face-offs are, continue to be a disaster. They played a large role in almost blowing that um, Pittsburgh series. As a matter of fact, in the in that Game 7, winning some face-offs really almost contributed to the Rangers' comeback wins. Zibanejan in particular played really well on face-offs and, and everything else, by the way, um, in that Game 7. And so when I say in this game against Carolina that the Rangers were atrocious again, and dominated on face-offs, they were. And they were dominated on shots on goal by a wide margin. And so the Rangers had one attempted shot in the first 10 minutes of the third period. They didn't try anything more than one shot in 10 minutes. So let that sink in. Later in the period was the absolute 100% turning point of the game. And I said it with who I was watching it with at the time. Kako missed a completely wide open net on a rebound. And I mean, it was the most wide open net you could possibly see. There was a shot. It rebounded across. If you're looking from behind the goal to the right side, Kako was at an angle, but Ranta, if you're looking at it from directly behind the net, was all the way to the left, past the left goal post as you're looking at it from behind. So he was not, no part of Ranta's body was covering any part of the goal. So the entire goal was completely wide open and Kako from an angle shot it wide. That would have made it two nothing Rangers with six minutes left in regulation. And that would have been it. That would have buried Carolina. It would have been a stunning game one upset on the road and that would have been it, but he missed it. You know, because we can't have nice things. Because Ranger fans can't have nice things, and in this case, relatively easy wins. Kako missed it. It stayed one nothing, and I knew at that point, and I said it out loud at that point, I knew that was the game. I'm like, when you miss that kind of goal, we're going to lose this game. Igor was great, all period, but again, because we can't have nice things. With two minutes left, Aho came in kind of all alone. You know, I don't know what Truba and Miller were doing, um, but they kind of turned a rush into a sort of two-on-one with Truba, standing around a little bit. Igor stopped, made a great stop on the initial shot for Sebastian Ajo, but Ajo got his own rebound, buried it, tied the game one-to-one with two minutes left. It was a crushing goal, one that Carolina certainly deserved. You can't say that. They dominated this third period, and they deserved to tie the game, but they were being stopped. And then they weren't. And again, that that Kako missed was just, uh, you knew it at the time. For the Rangers, you know, this was a chance to steal a road win, you know. But with two minutes left, they tied it up and it wasn't to be. Um, And the reason it wasn't to be, because in overtime, a harmless wrist shot about two and a half minutes in was deflected off of Ryan Lingren. Because that's how every goal against Sturkin is. Bounced down past Igor to give the Carolina a 2-1 overtime victory three minutes into overtime, and that was it. It was a crushing, if not unexpected, ending to this game one. 
I mean, with the way Carolina was playing the third period and the wide open net missed by Kako that could have put the game away, it was like a force of nature that you could see coming. You could see it. I could see it all third period. And then when Kako missed that, it was clear as day in my mind. I'm like, this is absolutely 100% a loss. They were winning one nothing with six minutes left. And in my mind, I said, we're absolutely losing this game. That's how clear it was to me. We could have put the game away, but it was, like I said, like a force of nature. You could feel, feel it coming, especially if you're a Ranger fan. Now, again, with the hyperbole that's upcoming here, I'm warning you ahead of time. It might sound silly. With this kind of loss, where they actually played better, I think, for at least two-thirds of the game in Carolina than, than the Hurricanes did. They, they actually had, I think, the better of the play for two of the three periods. Losing this game could seriously trigger a series of events where the Rangers are actually swept out of this series. And I don't say this lightly, and I obviously don't want it to happen, but the Hurricanes are quite superior, right? And, and they're, they're just a superior team to the Rangers and have been for a long time. You could see it bear out in the regular season. You could see it bear out in the last time we played them in the playoffs. And had the Rangers won this game, or had Kako hit that open net to make it 2 nothing with six minutes left, we could be speaking differently. But he missed the wide open net. And predictably, the Rangers lost the game, right? It's hard to think about what would have been because if that happened and the Rangers won, this definitely would have gone long. This would have been a long series, and who knows what would have happened. Now, obviously... If the Rangers somehow win in Carolina on Friday, all this, it's not moot, but certainly the dramatic nature <laughs> that you're hearing out of my out of my voice now, the dramatic words probably can be tempered a little bit, but I don't think they're going to win Friday night. Matter of fact, I think they're going to get blown out of the building um, because they played really, really, really well and, and probably better overall than Carolina in game one, and they still lost. You know, and, and so when Carolina starts playing better than the Rangers, watch out. And it's going to happen. If it doesn't happen Friday, it's going to happen. But the point is that this was the chance. This was it. When you came into the series, you thought, geez, there's very, very, very little way that the Rangers could possibly win a seven-game series. Maybe if they Igor stands on his head and they could maybe sneak in a road win in one of the first two games. And this was it. They were going to sneak in a road win. They were going to win one nothing. There were two minutes left. They were up one nothing. They were going to win a road game. This was going to be it. But it wasn't to be. And I'm telling you, this is the kind of game that both mentally can break the Rangers down. And just when Carolina starts playing better than the Rangers consistently, which I'm telling you is coming, um, it could lead, believe it or not, to a sweep. And, and it sounds silly and it sounds hyperbolic to say that, but at this point, I would not be surprised if the Rangers do not win a game in this series. And I don't want that to happen. And obviously, it'll really sound silly if the Rangers somehow have managed to bounce back and win on Friday night, which would be awesome. But it is absolutely within the realm of possibility that this series ends up 4 nothing Carolina at this point. That is how devastating this loss was in Carolina. Again, the expectations were low, right? So coming in, it, it, it didn't feel like, you know, it, there was any chance for the Rangers. And so as heartbreaking and crushing a loss as this game one was for the Rangers, for me personally, it, it wasn't as much because I wasn't 
thinking the Rangers were going to win anyway. <laughs> and I kind of felt it coming the whole game. And it wasn't the same as the Pittsburgh series where I felt like we needed to win and we just weren't playing well. And, and I felt it all series against Pittsburgh. <clears throat> I just don't feel it against it, um, Carolina. And I can't articulate properly what I'm trying to say, I think, uh, unfortunately. And if you're listening to this podcast, I'll say, what the hell is this guy talking about? Uh, basically, you know, I don't feel like the Rangers had any chance to win the series. And so when events play out that lead to that, it doesn't make me quite as upset as if it would have happened with Pittsburgh, where I felt like we were the better team and, and needed to beat that team, even though it was very, very, very close. So we're, we're going to see. There's still six games left, right? Um this was the chance, but there's still six games left. The Rangers have shown a great resiliency all year, right? So on the positive side, they bounce back, this team, right? This team has heart. It has resiliency. We've seen it. And when you have a long series and an outstanding goaltender, anything can happen. But it just, in my mind, means losing this game is not going to be a long series. Maybe they'll prove me wrong, and that would be fantastic. But, you know, again, I'll leave it at this. If the Rangers end up losing 5 nothing Friday or 4-1, I am not going to be the least bit surprised. Um, I do hope that they surprise me Friday night, though. That would be just wonderful for this resilient team to bounce back and somehow steal a win. That would be probably the most resilient win of any time this year to try to bounce back from that kind of loss and actually steal a road win Friday night would be just epic. You know, it would be just wonderful. But, um, again, I see more of a five, nothing loss than a, than a two, one victory, but you know, Hey, anything can happen. Like I said, when you have a great goaltender, you can do things. So they're back in action Friday night, 8 PM Rangers hurricanes, where they'll try to redeem themselves and somehow, somehow try to find a way to win game two. I'm going to move on and talk about the Yankees at this point. So the New York Yankees are rolling, baby. I want to talk about a few odds and ends. They continue to roll. And as I record this contest, the Yankees are 27 and 9, baby. 27 and 9. Best record in Major League Baseball. And they are rolling. Everything just seems to be falling their way at this point, and that, that's a great thing. There are certainly some underlying concerns, which I'm going to talk about because you know me. But let's face it here. Uh, the Yanks are just rolling. They're finding ways to win as we, you know, head into, you know, mid-May. Uh, Judge and Stanton are crushing the friggin' baseball, and Judge is just killing it, killing it. He had two homers and a double the other night. He's leading the majors in home runs with 14, killing it. Oh, my God. Just to see Judge and Stanton together, both hitting the ball at the same time, is amazing because it almost never happens. We've had them together for, what, three, three, four years now, and never do they ever seem to be both hot at the same time. So it means a lot, and it's just fantastic to watch. Um, just going to jump around some odds and ends here. Poor Montgomery. Oh my God. Jordan Montgomery, you know, the big lefty pitcher the Yankees have, he continues to pitch really, really well and get absolutely no offensive help in all his starts. I mean, it's beyond comical at this point. What can you say? Uh, in Chicago, for example, they were playing the White Sox. Montgomery started the third game of the series, right? So the Yankees had already played two games in Chicago. In the first two games, the Yankees scored 25 runs, right? They had 14 runs in one game, 11 in another, 25 runs in the first two games. Montgomery starts game three, 
And when Montgomery was pulled from the game in the fifth or sixth, the Yanks had scored zero runs because, of course, poor Montgomery. I got to tell you, man, 25 runs, zero runs. It's just some mental thing that kicks in when Montgomery starts and he just has to be perfect all the time because the Yankees never, ever, ever get him any wins. I mean, this poor kid at the end of his career, is his record is not going to look great because he never gets any runs. This is the second year in a row where this has happened. The entire last season, this happened again. So this is now heading into the second consecutive year where, I don't know, the Yanks say, hey, Jordan's out there. Let's not score. Anyway, I feel bad for him. I make fun of it, but boy, we deserve to get this guy six or eight runs at some point, you know, one of his starts and a couple in 10 of his starts because we owe him so many, so many good games. Now, this last game wasn't his best outing, but he still held the Yanks in it uh, while being supported by zero runs. Yet again, the curse of Monty is real. What else can we talk about? Running out everything all the time, hustling essentially, wins ball games. Case in point, Thursday night's Yankee game last week, right? It was against the White Sox in Chicago. It was 7-7 in the eighth inning. I think it was like 7-7, right? Luizga blew the lead for the Yankees, actually. And that's another problem I'm going to talk about in a little bit. The Yankees' bullpen. Luizga, the Yanks were winning, and Luizga blew the lead. It was 7-7 in the eighth inning. With two outs and the bases loaded, Judge hit a slow grounder to short, right? Judge hustled his ass off, barely beat the throw, and the Yanks not only took the lead, but Glaber Torres, of all people, actually hustled also and scored from second base. So hustling to first, actually got Aaron Judge two RBIs without the ball leaving the infield. Imagine that. Rather than still being a tie game, 7-7, it was 9-7 Yankees. Hustling everything out is critical in baseball. You know, not having Gardner on this team, it's just that's a terrible example. Gardner busted everything out all the time. Now they have people on the team that just don't run, and it bothers the shit out of me. Anyway, there's an excellent case in point where running out everything helps, and in this case, directly led to a win. What else? Gleyber Torres cannot play defense. Still. Full stop. Anyone who disagrees with me just is closing their eyes when they're watching. Another error on Tuesday night after being praised on NJ.com. It's just amazing. He gets a full article anytime he makes one good play. He makes 10 bad plays, two errors, radio silence from from NJ.com. But, you you know, he makes one good play, and, oh, there's articles and quotes about how much better his defense is. uh, Wednesday night, I'm watching the game, and he's every throw to first. It's in the dirt. He's bouncing double play relays. An easy little 20-foot throw, uh, what do you call it? Rizzo almost had the scoop at first base. He's slow. He's lazy on defense. His arm is not accurate. He's a terrible defensive player. He's terrible. I'm sorry. He's terrible. I don't want to hear how good he is defensively. He's a terrible defensive player. It doesn't matter if he's at short or second. He sucks defensively. Uh, next, moving on. For the outstanding Yankees, the bullpen does remain a concern. I got to tell you, the bullpen, three people in particular, Green, Loisaga, and Chapman, are all completely, completely unreliable at this point. Um, Green 
in particular has been disastrous, right? Um, he's someone I don't even want on the team anymore at this point. But why is it good? we have to get turned around ASAP? I mean, he, he's looking as bad as I've seen him on the team. Now, Chapman, what are you going to say? Again, Wednesday night looked look terrible. Chapman is, is our closer. Um, is someone who was unhittable for his whole career, mostly unhittable, right? Until about, say, midseason last year, right, 2021, where things started to turn completely. He had a great first half of 2021, and then it just fell apart for him. Forget it. Um, since then, he has been just as hittable and wild as any other reliever I've ever seen. It's a crapshoot every time he's in there. He can't get the ball over the plate. He throws it past the catcher, right? He bounces balls left and right. I mean, when he throws strikes, he's hittable. And when he throws balls, it's not an inch or two off the plate. It's like two feet high, three feet outside. Like, it's like watching... You know, the old movie, Major League, just a bit outside where, where the dude is throwing the ball like three feet off the plate. Like he's really lost it. And, you know, it's a crapshoot. Raise your hand now, listeners. Raise your hand if you're fully confident in Chapman coming into a tie game, you know, or if you have a one-run lead against, you know, a good team. Go ahead. Raise your hand. Are you confident in Chapman holding down the lead? No friggin' way. I'm telling you. I mean, Tuesday night in Baltimore, he gave up a run in the ninth and three hits and did the game with second and third. And, and oh, God, God, hopefully something clicks with him and he turns it around soon. It's hard to imagine going far in the playoffs with this kind of unreliable closer. I mean, every time I think about Chapman coming in the game, I want to throw up like he's not doing well. He blew another game Saturday night in Chicago with two walks and a single. It's tough. I mean, they have to use someone else. They did on Wednesday night. I think a minute ago I said he blew something Wednesday, but they used uh, Holmes on Wednesday night, and Holmes did real well. Let's see. What else? Odds and ends for the Yankees. Um, my favorite Yankee, Hicks. <laughs> oh, my God. I can't stand Hicks. Hicks comes in as a pinch runner last week. All right. Um, he comes in to pinch around for somebody on first base and slow ass Rizzo is on second base, right? The Yanks are trailing two to one in the eighth inning, right? It's first and second. You got a slow runner on second and Boone pinch runs for the runner on first base. So I can't remember who it is now. So you have Hicks on first, who's supposedly really fast. And you have Rizzo on second, who everyone knows is slower than a sack of shit, right? So, the pitch comes in, Rizzo steals third base. But Hicks, who entered the game as a pinch runner, because he's fast, stays at first base. What kind of fucking jerk, idiot, lazy, unaware player can you possibly be? You are coming into the game as a pinch runner. Your entire friggin' job is to run fast and steal bases. The guy ahead of you, who is slow as shit, steals third base. You're supposed to be watching him. And anyone knows when you're on first and the runner from second goes, you go. Slow-ass Rizzo steals third. Hicks stays on first base. With one out, that was critical. It was absolutely critical because it leaves a double play. In, and, and you can get out of the game, get out of the inning, with a double play without a run scoring with a runner on first. When it's second and third if he actually did what he's supposed to do, that is taken out of play, and the, and the Yanks could have easily gotten a run with a, you know, a fly ball or a ground ball, 
But the fact that he didn't run meant that in a one-run game, a double play still kept the lead for Chicago. And it's just another little ridiculous thing that Hicks sucks at, and that's awareness. He isn't slow in the outfield. I, I can't stand him. He's also not hitting well now, but, you know, he's never been my favorite hitter to start with. In any case, it Hicks drives me nuts, and I'm sorry. I know I keep pounding you guys with Hicks, but <clears throat> he is the bane of my existence on this team, and, and he, he needs to be released at this point. I don't want Hicks on the team. I don't want him. I haven't forever. Every year I've been saying this, but I don't want him on the team. One more last thing. Um... Maybe two. Analytics. It seems, I was reading an article on Volpe, right? Anthony Volpe is the Yankees stud prize shortstop. One of two, apparently, that we have in the minor leagues, right? I'm reading an article on him, right? And he's having a tough start to this season. But something I wanted to take from the article that I wanted to share with you guys in case you didn't read it. It was on NJ.com. And it seems that right away from the minors now, this horseshit sabermetrics, analytics, this shit is thrown at young players at an early age. And it's making everything worse. Um, it's why no players seem to care anymore about batting average and why so many Major League Baseball players just suck balls hitting right now. The Yanks prospect, and he's a superstar prospect, Anthony Volpe, he's, he's seriously a stud, right? He's hitting all of 170 right now, right? 170. 170, he's hitting, right? Get the words out of his coaches from the article. Uh, we're talking the other day that his baseball average on balls in play was 200, and his expected average was 280. This is the kind of horseshit. Um, so he's really ran into some tough luck. You know, my eyes tell me that. He smoked some balls to left and right, and guys just ran them down or he hit them right at him. His walk rate, his miss rates, and it goes on and on and on about this happy horse shit. I mean, he's like a 280 or 290 hitter in general. So if he were hitting 245, 250, you might be able to talk to me about tough luck or throw some horse shit statistics my way. You're hitting 170 and your career average is 290, you're putting lipstick on a pig at this point, dude. I don't want to hear about your bullshit statistics and batting average on balls in play, which, by the way, is horseshit, because if you strike out, it's not a ball in play. It still means you suck. Anyway, at any point, he'll be better for sure. Let's face it. Volpe is a stud. He's going to be fine, right? But this bullshit from these coaches, this analytics, it drives me nuts. It drives me bonkers, and it continues to permeate utter bullshit into baseball and now it's doing so at the youngest of ages and it's just making me sick i can't take it you know they teach them these launch angles and this happy horseshit so so now when they get to the majors and they're not hitting well they're, they're going to repeat this happy horseshit well my batting average on balls in play give me a fucking break i mean come on here in any case um he'll be fine but it's just i i, I can't take it this analytics is ruining baseball it's making it a terrible product uh, last thing I wanted to mention is, uh, Judge make, might make $500 million at this point. <laughs> he held out before the beginning of the season, right? And stopped his contract negotiations. He turned down, I don't know, so much money, 200 and something million dollar contract, which I really got on him about because I thought he was pushing his luck there. But for him, it may turn out to be, you know, a great move, I suppose, because if somehow refusing 230 million was a good move in some person's world apparently that can be a true statement 
where, where, you know, somehow you can't live on $230 million. So, but in all honesty, he's going to get a gigantic contract at this point. Of course, he's got to get through the season, right? If he gets hurt, particularly toward the end of the year, God forbid, tears his ACL or has some other injury where, you know, it hurts his elbow and he can't throw or something comes up. He just lost the lottery and ripped up the winning ticket. He had $230 million in his pocket. Right now, it's looking like he went double or nothing, and he's going he's gonna to probably get just some insane, insane contract at this point because he is hitting like there's no tomorrow. He's playing good defense. He's hustling. I mean, he's leading the batting, the, the majors in, in homers. He's got 30-something ribbies. He's hitting over 300. He is, uh, he's playing MVP quality baseball right now. And so right now, he's got a winning ticket. But, but boy, you know, everyone's got to hope for his health because holy moly. And the last thing I'll say about that is as good as he's playing now, uh, God, if the Yankees offer him a seven or eight year contract, God help me. I cannot imagine him at 37 or 38 years old, but you know, Maybe, maybe he'll, uh, he'll continue his great play, but boy, he may make the most money ever in the history of baseball at this point. And right now, <laughs> quite honestly, he deserves it with the way he's playing. He's playing tremendously at, at the moment. So, hey, go judge and let's go Yankees. That's all I have for today. So thank you for listening to Jersey Guy Sports and please subscribe to the podcast. Tell your friends all about it. And I will be back soon with some more sports talk. Thanks and have a good day.